Section 26 of Old and New Masters by Robert Lind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It is the custom when praising a Russian writer to do so at the expense of all other Russian writers. It is as though most of us were monotheists in our devotion to authors, and could not endure to see any respect paid to the rivals of the god of the moment. And so one year Tolstoy is laid prone as Dagon, and another year Turgenev, and no doubt the day will come when Dostoevsky will fall from his huge eminence. Perhaps the luckiest of all the Russian authors in this respect is Chekhov. He is so obviously not a god. He does not deliver messages to us from the mountaintop like Tolstoy, or reveal himself beautifully in sunset and star like Turgenev, or announce himself now in the hurricane and now in the thunderstorm like Dostoevsky. He is a man and a medical doctor. He pays professional visits. We may define his genius more exactly by saying that his is a general practice. There has, I think, never been so wonderful an examination of common people in literature as in the short stories of Chekhov. His world is thronged with the average man and the average woman. Other writers have also put ordinary people in books. They have written plays longer than Hamlet and novels longer than Don Quixote about ordinary people. They have piled such a heap of details on the ordinary man's back as almost to squash him out of existence. In the result, the reader, as well as the ordinary man, has a sense of oppression. He begins to long for the restoration of the big subject to literature. Henry James complained of the littleness of the subject in Madame Bovary. He regarded it as one of the miracles of art, that so great a book should have been written about so small a woman. Tom Jones, on the other hand, is a portrait of a common man of the size of which few people complain. But then Tom Jones is a comedy, and we enjoy the continual relief of laughter. It is the tragic realist for whom the common man is a theme so perilous in its temptations to dullness. At the same time, he is a theme that they were bound to treat. He is himself, indeed, the sole source and subject of tragic realism in literature. Were it not for the oppression of his futile and philoprogenitive presence, imaginative writers would be poets and romancers. The problem of the novelist of contemporary life, for whom ordinary people are more intensely real than the few magnificent personalities, is how to portray ordinary people in such a way that they will become better company than they are in life. Chekhov, I think, solves the problem better than any of the novelists. He sees, for one thing, that no man is uninteresting when he is seen as a person stumbling towards some goal, just as no man is uninteresting when his hat is blown off and he has to scuttle after it down the street. There is bound to be a break in the meanest life. Chekhov will seek out the key situation in the life of a cabman or charwoman and make them glow for a brief moment in the tender light of his sympathy. He does not run sympathy as a stunt, like so many popular novelists. He sympathizes merely in the sense that he understands in his heart as well as in his brain. He has the most unbiased attitude, I think, of any author in the world. Mr. Edward Garnett, in his introduction to Mrs. Garnett's translation of Chekhov's tales, speaks admirably of his profundity of acceptation. There is no writer who is less inclined to use italics in his record of human life. Perhaps Mr. Garnett goes too far when he says that Chekhov stands close to all his characters, watching them quietly and registering the circumstances and feelings with such finality that to pass judgment on them appears supererogatory. 
Chekhov's judgment is at times clear enough, as clear as if it followed a summing up from the bench. He portrays his characters instead of labeling them, but the portrait itself is the judgment. His humor makes him tolerant, but though he describes moral and material ugliness with tolerance, he never leaves us in any doubt as to their being ugly. His attitude to a large part of life might be described as one of good-natured disgust. In one of the newly translated stories, Ariadne, he shows us a woman from the point of view of a disgusted lover. It is a sensitive man's picture of a woman who was even more greedy than beautiful. This thirst for personal success makes people cold, and Ariadne was cold to me, to nature, and to music. Chekhov extends toward her so little charity that he makes her run away to Italy with a bourgeois who had a neck like goose skin and a big Adam's apple, and who, as he talked, breathed hard, breathing straight in my face and smelling of boiled beef. As a more sensitive lover who supplanted de bourgeois looks back, her incessant gluttony is more vivid in his thoughts than in her charm. She would sleep every day till two or three o'clock. She had her coffee and lunch in bed. At dinner she would eat soup, lobster, fish, meat, asparagus, game, and after she had gone to bed, I used to bring up something, for instance roast beef, and she would eat it with a melancholy careworn expression, and if she waked in the night, she would eat apples or oranges. The story, it is only fair to say, is given in the words of a lover dissatisfied with lust, and the judgment may therefore be regarded as the lover's rather than as Chekhov's. Chekhov sets down the judgment, however, in a mood of acute perceptiveness of everything that is jarring and vulgar in sexual vanity. Ariadne's desire to please is never permitted to please us, as, say, Beatrix Esmond's is. Her will to fascinate does not fascinate when it is refracted in Chekhov's critical mind. She waked up every morning with the one thought of pleasing. It was the aim and object of her life. If I told her that in such a house, in such a street, there lived a man who was not attracted by her, it would have caused her real suffering. She wanted every day to enchant, to captivate, to drive men crazy. The fact that I was in her power and reduced to a complete non-entity before her charms gave her the same sort of satisfaction that victors used to get in tournaments. She had an extraordinary opinion of her own charms. She imagined that if somewhere, in some great assembly, men could have seen how beautifully she was made and the color of her skin, she would have vanquished all Italy, the whole world. Her talk of her figure, of her skin, offended me, and observing this, she would, when she was angry, say all sorts of vulgar things taunting me. A few strokes of cruelty are added to the portrait. Even at a good-humored moment, she could always insult a servant or kill an insect without a pang. She liked bullfights, liked to read about murders, and was angry when prisoners were acquitted. As one reads Ariadne, one feels that those who say the artist is not a judge are in error. What he must avoid becoming is a prosecuting, perhaps even a defending, counsel. Egoism seems to be the quality which offends Chekhov most. He is no more in love with it when it masquerades as virtue than when it parades as vice. An artist's story, a beautiful sad story, which might almost have been written by Turgenev, contains a fine critical portrait of a woman absorbed in the egoism of good works. She is always looking after the poor, serving on committees, full of enthusiasm for nursing and education. She lacks only that charity of the heart, which loves human beings, not because they are poor, but because they are human beings. She is by nature a boss. 
She bosses her mother and her younger sister, and when the artist falls in love with the latter, the stronger will of the woman of high principles immediately separates lovers so frivolous that they had never sat on a committee in their lives. When, the evening after the artist confesses his love, he waits for the girl to come to him in the garden of her house, he waits in vain. He goes into the house to look for her, but does not find her. Then, through one of the doors, he overhears the voice of the lady of good works. God sent a crow, she said in a loud, emphatic voice, probably dictating. God sent a crow a piece of cheese, a crow, a piece of cheese. Who's there, she called suddenly, hearing my steps. It's I. Ah, excuse me, I cannot come to open this minute. I'm giving Dasha her lesson. Is Ekaterina Pavlona in the garden? No, she went away with my sister this morning to our aunt in the province of Pensa. And in the winter they will probably go abroad, she added after a pause. God sent the crow a piece of cheese. Have you written it? I went into the hall and stared vacantly at the pond in the village, and the sound reached me of a piece of cheese. God sent the crow a piece of cheese. And I went back by the way I had come here for the first time, first from the guard into the garden past the house, then into the avenue of lime trees. At this point I was overtaken by a small boy who gave me a note. I told my sister everything, and she insisted on my parting from you, I read. I could not wound her by disobeying. God will give you happiness. Forgive me. If only you knew how bitterly my mother and I are crying. The people who cannot wound others, those are the people whose sharp pangs we feel in our breasts as we read the stories of Chekhov. The people who wound, it is they whom he paints, or rather, as Mr. Garnett suggests, etches, with such felicitous and untiring irony. But, though he often makes his people beautiful in their sorrow, he more often than not sets their sad figures against a common and ugly background. In Anyuta, the medical student and his mistress lives in a room disgusting in its squalor. Crumpled bedclothes, pillows thrown about, boots, clothes, a big filthy slop pail filled with soap suds in which cigarette ends were swimming, and the litter on the floor, all seemed as though purposefully jumbled together in one confusion. And, if the surroundings are no more beautiful than those in which a great part of the human race lives, neither are there people more beautiful than ordinary people. In the trousseau, the poor thin girl who spends her life making a trousseau for a marriage that will never take place becomes ridiculous as she flushes at the entrance of a stranger into her mother's house. Her long nose, which was slightly pitted with smallpox, turned red first, and then the flush passed up her eyes and her forehead. I do not know if a blush of this sort is possible, but the thought of it is distressing. The woman in the darling, who marries more than once and simply cannot live without someone to love and to be an echo of, is not half bad to look at. But she is ludicrous even when most unselfish and adoring, especially when she rubs with Eau de Cologne her little, thin, yellow-faced, coughing husband, with the curls combed forward on his forehead, and wraps him in her warm shawls to an accompaniment of endearments. You're such a sweet pet, she used to say with perfect sincerity, stroking his hair. You're such a pretty dear. Thus sympathy and disgust live in a curious harmony in Chekhov's stories, and as he seldom allows disgust entirely to drive out sympathy in himself, he seldom allows it to do so in his readers either. His world may be full of unswept rooms and unwashed men and women, but the presiding genius in it is the genius of gentleness and love and laughter. It is a dark world. But Chekhov brings light into it. There is no other author who gives so little offense as he shows us offensive things and people. 
He is a writer who desires above all things to see what men and women are really like, to extenuate nothing, and to set down naught in malice. As a result, he is a pessimist, but a pessimist who is black without being bitter. I know no writer who leaves one with the same vision of men and women as lost sheep. We are now apparently to have a complete edition of the tales of Chekhov in English from Mrs. Garnett. It will deserve a place both for the author's and the translator's sake besides her Turgenev and Dostoevsky. In lifelikeness and graciousness her work as a translator always reaches a high level. Her latest volumes confirm one in the opinion that Chekhov is, for his variety, abundance, tenderness, and knowledge of the heart of the rapacious and unclean animal called man, the greatest short-story writer who has yet appeared on the planet. End of section 26